Thanks for listening to the James from Montana podcast, a new podcast in which I interview experts in the tech industry with the goal of slowly uploading the collective consciousness of tech into the cloud. For more information on today's guest topic or how to be a guest yourself, visit jamesfromontana.com forward slash podcast. Now, before I hype our guest today, I had to take a moment to welcome our guest co-host this episode, Denise Lee, a former biologist turned coder. She's a University of California grad with a background of traveling the world for biology before settling into engineering. Welcome, Denise. Hey, that's me. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Uh, You can call me uh, Denise from California today. All right, Denise from California. Now, our (laughs) special guest and expert this episode is David Price, and I've actually had the privilege of meeting him nearly a year ago in Ireland. David is known for his work as a co-founder of Redwood JS. You might have heard of it. Partner at PW Ventures and Climate Philanthropy at 128 Collective. David, long time. No see. How are you, man? I'm good. Good to be here. I'll, I'll be David from Northern Northern California, like way above San Francisco Bay Area, right? So most people think that like California ends at the Bay Area. They're like, oh yeah. And then like, what's Oregon up there? Well, it's like a third of the state that uh, we, we don't talk about, but I'm, I'm up in that part of California. And so there's a highway. If you were to drive north up the Sonoma Valley, hang a hard left into the Anderson Valley, that's Highway 128. So the philanthropy organization that I work with is called 128 Collective. Well, yeah, it has been a while since we've been in the car. That was a really... That was a wonderful end to a great week, James. It's good to be with you again. Awesome, man. Look, I didn't know all of your job titles. I'm going to be real with you. That's ridiculous. Genuine question. Like, oh, are you man. are you an AI copy yourself or are you like the real David? <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I'm the real David Price. Isn't that? You know, I own, you know this, my email, thedavidprice.com. How pretentious do you have to be to add the in front of your name? <laughs> it's just because I'm not, I'm not the baseball player. I've not won any World Series. I'm not the English football player. I'm not the U.S. congressman, and I'm not the motivational speaker from Australia. I'm just the David Price. I, I am not. I'm not the busiest man alive. I, I work with one of the busiest men alive. Uh, you know, really, I, I'm an entrepreneur, so we should probably start there. Uh, most of my career has been in software and entrepreneurship. I, I did some time academically as a, as a mechanical biomedical engineer, Denise, and then thought I'd go into bioethics, and then realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. Stumbled into software really early on. So I've, I've invented a lot of, uh, invented a lot of things for myself to do. What I, what I realized recently though, is when people ask you, what do you do? There's really two things that are coming after in that question. And I'm giving you a long answer. One is like, just tell me what your job title is. Right. But as an entrepreneur, you're like, do you tell them what you do? You, you forget that they just really want to know, like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a senior dev. Right. But I just drive right in. So most people's eyes like glaze over. So you're getting, you're getting the glaze over. Let me, so that's what this means. I have the pleasure of working with a gentleman named Tom Preston Warner. And Tom uh, was one of the co-founders of GitHub. Uh, GitHub got acquired by Microsoft uh, a few, few years ago. And uh, Tom loves open source. Uh, his wife has been doing, um, she's a PhD in anthropology and have been doing a lot of work in developing countries uh, for a long time. So what what evolved uh, since around 2018 2019 um, was they they started doing a lot of work starting in philanthropy, and one of that has become climate philanthropy. That's the 128 Collective, and I have a role there, not as much uh, as I used to starting out. There's a really wonderful grant making team doing work in climate science. They have to work across cross regulation. Um, honestly, a lot of my passion 
there in the technology space is still in the philosophy ethics. We could talk about that another time, but it turns out what the effect of the tools we build on us as people in society, like that matters. And it's a really hard thing to think about, but I love noodling on that anyway. Uh, so the philanthropy work, most of my time though, is um, spent on the one uh, on Redwood. And uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that. That's where my work right now as a developer uh, team lead, large open source project. So that's probably most relevant to the uh, topic here. And then because of Tom's world, he was an angel investor for about a decade. And our work with founders, we have a casual incubator in the Redwood uh, ecosystem. We do a lot of work with startups and founders. Because of our work there, we ended up uh, creating a proper venture fund as of February this year. Uh, Tom is the lead on that fund. I'm a general partner now. And I told Tom, hey, well, let's you know, you've, you've been doing angel investing for 10 years. What if we like, you know, make it official? We'll create a process around it. It'll take less of your time. It'll be great. It'll be efficient. Well, you know, when you get high efficiency, it turns out your throughput's been really high. So it's been a really busy year. And we've seen, seen a, few, a few things change this year uh, from the investing forefront on the, on the edges of technology. Uh, that's been really fun. Uh, it's kept me really busy. But yes, I do. I am an investor now at, um, at Preston Warner Ventures. So yes, it turns out it's it sounds really busy. At the heart of it all is I, I get to work with teams and help develop teams, get to work with uh, founders and try to support them and connect people. And we're trying to build some cool stuff uh, with some cool people. That's that's the TLDR. How is that for a not short intro? It's a comprehensive, maybe? Uh, no. Yeah, see, ask, <laughs> ask an entrepreneur what they do and there's no job title attached to it. So now you know what I do. I love it. I love it. I want to talk to you about investing, but first, I think probably important to touch on for the listeners, what exactly Redwood JS is. And I think you're probably the best person to talk to about what it is exactly. <laughs> other, <laughs> other than Tom. Uh, yes, uh, you know, Redwood, and there's there's two people actually that could really tell you what a Redwood is, and they started it. So Tom Preston Warner and uh, Peter Pistorius, they worked together at another startup Tom did called Chatterbug. And Redwood is now a full stack JavaScript framework uh, for building multi-client applications. So primarily web-based. Uh, it comes out of the box with the technologies that may or may not be familiar to your listeners, but so it's it's React-based on the front end. Prisma for the ORM, uh, GraphQL, and we're stitching together testing libraries, uh, storybook uh, for UI design. We really take like everything you would need across CI, CD and try to give that to you out of the box with a modern framework that deploys on modern infrastructure. And the reason for that was Tom and Peter were building Rails on the back end, doing React on the front end, added GraphQL API, and just realized like, oh man, this is... This, this could be easier. And as no one just patched all these things together and like made it work, I'm sick of making choices. I'm sick of maintaining all this and keeping it up to date all the time. And thus was born uh, Redwood. So we really do think it's the best way right now to build a full stack JavaScript application. Uh, there's, um, gosh, there's a lot of, lot of validation points along the way. Uh, the people that could validate that much more than I would be the group of founders that we've been working with. And fundraising is not a measure of success per se, but it's one way for us to say that Redwood is credible. And we, of the startups we know that are using Redwood in their tech stack, uh, oh, they've raised just shy of $70 million, uh, starting to scale their engineering teams. So it's, it's credible. 
It's in production. It's working with medium-sized teams right now. Uh, it's starting to show great use cases at scale. And it's all, who knew it? JavaScript. So what made you recognize that the industry has a need for uh, Redwood JS? Because JavaScript is a pain in the ass. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so here's, here's what's fun. I, I, came, I came to this, right? Like uh, the pain threshold is way too high, right? And actually JavaScript is, modern JavaScript is really wonderful. Again, I can't take inspiration for that. This was really Tom and Peter's uh, inspiration for, for like what this could be. I came out of a mean stack project just before this and the startup I was doing before working on Redwood. It, it's interesting. The backend tooling has really changed and gotten really strong. Right? The front-end tooling has really changed and gotten strong. When you need to integrate and couple those two things together, it's, it's on you. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And because JavaScript is highly dynamic, you have to suffer the pain of a really highly dynamic ecosystem that's moving fast and, and holding all those loose ends right, uh, on yourself. So and it turns out when you get into the nitty gritty, like security, authentication, supply chain, all those things can become really painful to keep up. And then now you've got all this deployment infrastructure, serverless edge that's really rapidly changing too. And honestly, one of the inspirations for Redwood at the time was that uh, the prediction that serverless was going to get better and better. Uh, so serverless infrastructure, AWS Lambdas, uh, serverless databases. And we made a bet in 2019, 2020, that that would be the way to deploy a dynamic database back full stack application. And I don't think that's been as true as we wanted it to be. AWS Lambdas have kind of stalled out in terms of like becoming more powerful, greater capacity. Really some of the things we discovered was as soon as you add that data layer, you need to query your database. Networking becomes really important and you're back in the same region. Why are you using AWS Lambda? And also they get really expensive when they start to scale. There are a lot of disparate pieces. Something that seems to have happened in the JavaScript ecosystem, and we've been working on this for four years, but around that time, and we weren't the only ones to notice this, is that the components of the stack started to become robust, well-known, right? They kind of knew like, hey, for the front end, there's some great technologies out there. You know, React is in the lead and React is doing really well. Node has matured substantially. Um, all this other tooling, it really, a lot of the components had consolidated. No one had come along and said, let's take all those pieces and put them together, create some conventions, uh, create an opinionated full stack framework, integrate it all, add generators to remove some of the boilerplate, take a lot of things we learned from Rails and bring that to a modern, a modern language and a modern full stack framework. That just hadn't been done. And frankly, I don't know of another one that's approached the problem from the same way that, that Redwood has. You have some really interesting ha things happening in the React ecosystem. So these front-end first frameworks that have started to back into, no pun intended, right, back-end. Uh, but no one's really taken the approach of how, how can we integrate all the pieces we need for a proper back-end, proper front-end, take into consideration that what, what software product is not multi-client these days and how do we support that and stitch it all together. So that's the inspiration. And how do you move fast and enjoy the tools you're using? So that was, that, a lot of things came together at the same time. So you, you talked a little bit about how Redwood JS right now is growing in that 
the companies that started to use it are are now reaching like medium size. So like what companies are we looking at? Like what is Redwood JS uh, sort of known for in the public eye? Well, a lot of companies. I wish it were the days of early Ruby on Rails where you could have that one production application that just like made the reputation for your framework, right? And that's that's shifted a bit. <laughs> um, things have come a long way since then. There's, turns out there's a lot more a lot more companies. There's not just one app uh, to show. And uh, Redwood went version one in April of 2022. Uh, we have an RC out right now for version six, which shows how quickly we're moving. But right, so it was around the time of version one where we saw a lot more adoption happen. Uh, so it's been it's been over a year now, not quite 18 months. Uh, the the diversity of products that are being built with Redwood is what's fun for us. So let let me go down my list uh, from the Redwood Showcase event that we had. Uh, in May of this year. And again, that's at youtube.com forward slash redwoodjs and you'll see our showcase event. I'll start start at the bottom here. It, it list, I-T-L-I-S-T. Uh, they're building a, um, a curation tool for content creators. Uh, Config is building automatic SDK creation. There's a whole group of really deep vertical SaaS companies. Uh, there's a startup studio called Fractal, and they have around 25 different startups that they've funded that are using Redwood, and they do really deep vertical SaaS. So this is a classic SPA uh, creation stories. Uh, but here's here's one one of my favorites is Leftlane, and Leftlane is building modern software for used car dealerships. Uh, Data Sketch is building uh, kind of a lightweight Tableau uh, for the browser. Teamstream is doing real-time video game event streaming. Poolflow is building a dev team collaboration app that lives it lives inside your GitHub PRs. We use it for Redwood. Ooh, Snaplet, you need to know about Snaplet. Peter Pistorius, one of the co-founders of Redwood, he started Snaplet. You know when you get started locally, devving on your product? You're like, I wish I could just like get a copy of my production database locally to use, but it's gotta be sanitized, it's gotta be secure. Snaplet does that locally for your dev team. And then also in your PRs, you can have a preview database seed uh, on your PRs. So I, I could keep going. There's not just one, James. Sorry. I love all these, I know all these founders. I just love them all. So I want to talk about them all. When you initially talked to me back in, I think it was October, about mm -hmm. Redwood, you had this somewhat of an idea of your end user of Redwood. Maybe it was like startups in general, but it definitely wasn't like trying to garner the attention of LinkedIn or some other big company, right? Yeah, very much. That's that's the affinity of the team that of us that started Redwood. We love building, love building products, um, love startups and entrepreneurship. So have an affinity for founders, probably attracted those kind of people to us uh, because of that and because of Tom's reputation. So it was very natural to shift Redwood, our focus in terms of how do we support, you know, greenfield projects, but people that are like coming to Redwood and saying, okay, I'm in, like, I have this thing I want to build and I want to use Redwood to get there and it's going to get me there quickly. And I'm going to go all in on it. And also when someone comes to you and says, I'm willing to stake my career on the stack that you're building, you just can't not take that seriously. That those became our power users and people we want to get close to and learn from so they can have influence back on the project. But also uh, one of our mantras in, well, it might be the mantra in the, in our, our culture across the open source project is by helping others be successful with Redwood, we'll make the Redwood project successful. 
That became the case in point. If we focus on helping these startup founders be successful with Redwood, that will elevate Redwood as a platform and make it better and make it more successful in the long run. And it's, it's totally proving out. Uh, these people are giving back to the framework. Um, they're hiring people that have grown in the community, have leveled up their own skills as a developer, have progressed and become a part of the core team, right? Got experiences because open source can provide that. We have a wonderful culture. These startups have hired Startups have come out of our community. Uh, they're, start, they're giving back, right? Pouring in their resources to make Redwood better. Um, they're coming to speak at the Redwood Conference uh, that we'll be hosting this September. <clears throat> and they're going to show some really cool things that they've figured out how to do with Redwood we didn't know before. Yes, so that's that's become the people that we've focused on. And it's, it's created a really, really wonderful uh, dynamic flywheel, uh, both for the people in the project and the project itself. So if you have an existing code base, how easy is it to migrate to using the Redwood JS framework? And is there like any code base that's like too spaghetti to transition? I don't know. Most use cases for Redwood we've seen have been greenfield for new products. Um, we've seen Redwood um, used inside of companies for like internal tooling. We saw Redwood being used at Shopify uh, before uh, they purchased Remix and then decided no more Redwood, re Remix only. It's so like internal tools, but those are still kind of one-off and standalone. Uh, we've seen Redwood be used by consultancies, but again, this is mostly new products. We've seen migration happen. The founders tell us their stories, right? So from Next, from SvelteKit coming over to Redwood, for the most part, anytime it's React to React, there's a few ways to do that if you're using React on your front end. I, I know of one company that migrated in a weekend from, from Next oh, to wow. Redwood. Yeah, I know, right? It, it depends. So there's some ways you can use Redwood non-Greenfield. Uh, one, because Redwood has first-class support for what I think is the best GraphQL experience server and client out of the box, uh, you can use Redwood as an additional API on an existing database. Uh, Prisma allows you to introspect. You can build a schema from there. So you could start offering a GraphQL and just using the Redwood API standalone against that database. And why you might want to do that is because you want to start supporting multiple clients. But like, I, I get it. GraphQL can feel like overkill. And that's actually one of the things we're addressing right now is how do we let people get started with Redwood without having to learn GraphQL? Because there is overhead there, especially when you only have one client. But GraphQL is awesome to consume. Like, I love, I love writing the queries on my front end to GraphQL. I'm like, ah, this just makes sense, right? Like just get the data I want, right? And traverse grab here and like, I'm good to go. So there's, there's some advantages to being able to start that way. Honestly, Redwood has not been a compelling use case for just the web side. So if you wanted to use React web client, we're not there yet. That's what we're building toward with our current uh, epoch of development where um, we're adopting React server components Red will be much more capable. We have a convention that's really nice called a cell convention, where it basically, there's a few things Redwood does to make state really easy to manage. And in React specifically, so state across <clears throat> your application. In React, I'm on a little tangent, I promise I'll bring it back. In, in GraphQL specifically, uh, we've created something that looks like a higher order component where loading, failure, success, all that happens inside of one component. And that's Redwood Cell, which worked really nicely for GraphQL. But we didn't create that convention for 
fetching from any data source. So you're back to kind of vanilla React. So just there, there are better tools out there to do that. And Redwood doesn't have a compelling static or you know server rendering story right now. Say you want to build an e-commerce site, that's not a good use case for Redwood on the front end React right now. But we're adapting React server components and um, it will be that in the future, you may just start your Redwood app out as a React front end only. And you might not worry about the other backend features that Redwood has or the database integration that Redwood has. You might just start out with that and we'll have some nice, we'll use those cell conventions for fetching from other data sources. And then you can adopt and evolve your requests as you need to over time. So again, I'm, I'm future looking here as well as current. If you wanted to adopt Redwood right now, the Redwood API is really powerful and nice to use. If you're looking for a GraphQL API with a lot of nice test suite, conventions built around it, scales really nicely. Again, all JavaScript. Uh, in the future, we're hoping people will come in because they want a web client to bring on or um, et cetera. And then they can build out backwards, right? So starting from the web back right now, you would start from the back end forward. I want to switch gears a little bit from Redwood JS and talk a little bit about climate tech. I mm. think there's somewhat of a bridge between what you are doing at Redwood JS and some of the climate tech startups I see you've talked to me about. Yes. Have you seen any climate tech startups coming through uh, with Redwood JS? You know, no. We've seen a lot of experimentation. And let me let me catch you up on the story that we talked about, right? So be, because of the work in 128 Collective and the work in the Redwood community, we had some questions around what are the opportunities? If I'm, a, if I'm an entrepreneur, want to do a startup, right? want to be a founder, and want to work in the climate space, my skill set is software development. What are the places where I should be looking right now uh, to begin work? Right? And not just market opportunities, because I, I would also like to move the needle on, on things. Right. I don't I don't want to just build for the sake of building. I'd like to know where I can get the most, like where the climate needs right now that I could I could work on. And um, the reality is like that that could be a lot of thing because every every hardware, hard science application is going to need to be software enabled. Software is what you need for for scale. But that when we talked last, James, that was a question that Tom and I took, and we did a series of kind of one hour interviews with investors and founders working in the climate software space just to get a feel for what's happening and where should we point people to, how could we connect our community, the Redwood JS ecosystem at large, with opportunities to work in climate or start projects in climate. And I think that's where we were at the last time we talked. Um, you know, the reality is right now in the climate space, we know what we need to do. There's a couple of ways to talk about this problem. One is what, what needs to happen right now in climate. And the other is if I want to get involved, on what level can I go get involved? And again, I'm not the expert here. I'm, I'm feeling this out for myself, right? This is a journey that, that Tom and I are on. We need a massive overhaul in our grid infrastructure, like starting place one. But we don't need new technology to do that. We need to go through that long, right? When you invent something, that's whatever, that's, you know, that's what makes the press and the headlines is like the inventors and like, hey, here's this new thing. And then the unsung heroes are the people that like rolled that stuff out, 
right? That, that took the light bulb, right? And actually made a light bulb work in every home, right? Within a certain area, right? Rolling out infrastructure and, and being able to, uh, to put things in place is really hard. And that's, that's what needs to happen right now. So we don't need to invent new things. We need to roll out infrastructure. Uh, we, we, need, we need to get the grid sources to be clean. We need to get everything electrified as much as we can. And uh, so that's, that's where to move the needle. And it turns out a lot of that has to do with policy and regulation, um, incentivization. And those can be some really hard places to operate. So that's, that's one of the hard realities. There's some cool things going on there. And then the what can I do with software in the climate space? Um, I would say the first thing is, yes, it's awesome to start a company. I get that. But there, there is so much right now that needs software. Like there are climate companies hiring right now that need software developer expertise, right? So if we're going to roll out, it, there's a consumer user interface approach to this problem. If you're going to roll out electrification, um, you're, you're kind of into skills that e-commerce e and um, uh, like think about all the grid, like anyone who's worked in e-commerce, selling things to consumers knowing how to build a UI for consumers, how to take really complex problems and boil it down to really simple decisions. Uh, there was a really small startup that we met in the, in the Midwest, and it was a gentleman who was just trying to make sure that insulation installers knew what incentives were available to their potential clients to basically pay for insulating their homes, right? And so there's, there's a disconnect between what's available and what's out there and the people that are doing the work on the ground level to know how to match that up for the consumers. So there's all these little low hanging fruit opportunities that really are like just consumer development problems. Um, and then when you get to the grid, oh gosh, there's a lot of things. <laughs> I wish I could, the specific examples are here. It's all kind of uh, muddled in my brain, but the, um, a lot of the examples that we've seen so far are, uh, yeah, just, managing grid and then managing data at such at a large scale and, and building the apps and dashboards to be able to have high level intelligence and analytics across IOT, across customers and those kind of insights. So there's a lot of software enabled that needs to happen. There are a lot of companies right now that are looking to hire. That's a great place to start. So um, I just got off a call earlier today with the crew from Work on Climate. And I think I'll just stop there as like, a resource to get started and their whole mission as a nonprofit organization is to enable this transition of people focused on X industries today that in whatever skill set they have, be it a product manager, be it a software engineer, be it an infrastructure engineer, and to get them connected to climate work opportunities. So work on climate is a great place to start. Workonclimate.org. There you go. So what made you interested in climate tech? Is it possibly related to, um, you know, your background in biomedical engineering? Gosh, what made it interesting? I, I think it's, it's hard to be, I mean, I wish I could say like, you know, I was just on the forefront of this and always keep my eye, like it's obvious, but no, not as much. I think, you know, for me, well, like everyone, um, how can you not be aware of it right now? And we're all probably experiencing what I experienced, which is just like, it's, it's such a hairy problem. And I'm just so inundated with bad news right now. I don't know what to do about anything. Yes, I, I've always been deeply passionate 
around the intersection of, to the best I can explain it, technology and culture, but really business technology and people and trying, yeah, how do we use technology to help people? I just, I love that question. That's been something I've been, I've cared a lot about my life. So that's, that's where the bioethics came into play early on. And I wanted to be really thoughtful from the early days of my career around how how I build things and the kind of effect that they're having. So that was just built into me. Blame it on being a firstborn. I just, you know, it's a whole responsibility thing. I'm sure like being a father also influences that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So I've just carried it. My firstbornness came first, right? And then my wife who's also firstborn. We managed to have twins. So there's basically, you know, we have a house full of firstborns and uh, (laughs) bless my six-year-old son who's just like, I've got so many people telling me what to do all the time. I went out. Uh, But yes, yes, those things. And so there is, I'm hardwired for that. Admittedly, I didn't come into a place of like, what what can I do to to work on climate until um, the invitation by Tom and Teresa to come and be a part of 128. Again, that was more because of my care and passion for um, what what we're doing and how we're thinking about software products at large. Uh, I was doing some work in 2018 and 2019 and trying to find ways to equip software product teams to think more about the outcomes of their technology on people and their end users. Right? What what aren't we measuring that we could be and and why aren't we? And that's that was a really really hard problem to solve. And I didn't come up with any good answers other than talking to a lot of people that agreed. Uh, but that that's what got me to 128 was pulling that thread. And again, it's not that I have this answer right now of how will I do that? Um, it's more, I'm pulling the threads on my own question. How, how can I do that? How can I enable that? And the things that I turn out, I love to do convening people, bringing, developing people, developing teams, creating a project of collaboration where people are working on that's just become an opportunity to connect that with the topics, the challenges of our day, which are climate. I've been pulled into this, Denise, as much as uh, anything. It wasn't that I woke up and said, this is, this is what I'm going to shoulder. Um, and I, I, I owe a lot to Tom and Teresa for they're the ones who picked up the charge here and I've, I've joined with them on it. I'm just pulling the thread and hopefully showing others that that's possible. You know, I think a lot of engineers in the same way, you know, we go to work, uh, we make some tech, maybe somebody down the line uses it, you know, hopefully. And uh, the the company makes money. Somebody has a better time because you filled some problem. But climate tech is completely different. Venture capital grasp onto technologies that return on investment, right? How do you feel like climate tech plays into that? I imagine that climate tech sort of isolates you from investors that um, are completely ROI focused um, and maybe aren't even on board with addressing climate. Mm. I wish I could speak more nuanced to your question. It resonates with me, you know, not, not having been an investor professionally until recently, you know, having watched a lot, I'm still getting caught up on history here and it's, I, I don't think that's actually a problem right now. Now there are a lot of challenges here, and 128 Collective is working on this too. Like, so one of the questions is, well, where did our modern financing system and and you know way of doing business where where did that you know what went wrong along the line, or is it just because of the whole thing itself that like got us in the problems we're in right now? 
right? And that's a really important question that we need to ask. But then it turns out if we just like throw all that stuff out the door and say like, I'm not going to care about financing, then it's like, well, wait, how are we going to build really large infrastructure projects? Right, right. Really the exactly. government asks and, and they're, they're doing their role. And there's actually like 128 Collective is working on those things as well. The idea of democratic public ownership of infrastructure, right? I mean, who owns the highways? Who owns the bridges? Who owns, right? There's a, such a thing as public utility. So that's not a new idea. It's an old idea. Um, and that's also something that could be used to accelerate this. But so there's been cycles of this over the last 15 years that I've talked to people. But it's, it's not that there's not early stage funding uh, for climate tech. And a lot of these things can have, you know, cross market potential, um, right? So example, like look at what's happening in batteries and the size of batteries becoming smaller, the energy density, right? And that's happening. Like, so seeing all these things explode over consumer devices and electronics, it turns out that battery storage is really important for the energy transition we need to make, right? So these things are complementary, and there's a lot of investment happening there. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not that there's not money uh, to invest in climate. The most positive trend that I've seen is traditional, whatever, Bay Area venture firms that aren't climate firms, but they're looking for opportunities here to invest because they see that, yes, there's a lot of money to be made in this transition. Again, I say that knowing there's a lot of problems and challenges with that statement, but that, that's a good sign, right? When it's not climate as a climate bucket, when it's just general investing as an opportunity, that's really important. The Inflation Reduction Act that happened, that was this year, right? <laughs> Where am I? Yes. What year is it? Black hole. <laughs> so. Right? That, that did a lot to start moving the needle uh, in some of these areas that we need. So that's incentivized. So the government is doing regulatory action, taking regulatory action to move the needle and make some investments attractive. We've seen this happen with electric cars. Uh, we're seeing it happen with uh, electric um, appliances inside of our home. There's some really cool things happening there. And honestly, all these things, there's a lot of synergy happening across the board. Where there's currently a lack of funding is to roll out billion dollar projects for hydrogen manufacturing for building out solar and wind farms. And that is because there's really high risk. Typically those are debt projects that get financed, right? So it's not early stage venture. It's like, I need to go build this really, really massive complex thing. And if you haven't built that before, it's, it's hard to just go get a loan at a bank and say, Hey, I'm stamping out another one of these. You know, remember we made this money last time and everybody was happy. We're just going to do the same thing this time. They don't have that story. It's new. And some of the tech at, at scale and manufacturing process is new. And that's, that's where there's a lack. So good news, James. It's not that there's not venture looking into these areas and opportunities. There's a lot of overlap and there is a lot of venture there. But to get to the scale we need for some of the manufacturing infrastructure projects, that is, that is lacking right now. Um, and hopefully we'll start to turn on some more activity. So you mentioned that the immediate need that you see is like with infrastructure. That seems more like a government kind of thing. Like we can't go yeah. and like program new streets. Yeah. What role do you see tech playing in alleviating like immediate climate needs? So where, where my focus is on tech is specifically software and startups. And I think that's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, okay, how do I solve a problem without like going and starting a new company? And be an entrepreneur. Aside from the large project rollouts that we need, 
um, there are a lot of opportunities within those spaces that need software enablement for rolling things out to consumers. Um, every device is now an internet connected device and that's only increasingly so. And that takes software technology and applications to manage and monitor and grow. I, I, I think the core of the challenge that, yeah, I still face, which is you. And actually once we had collective, we've gone back and forth in this is can, can we stop trying to focus on the regulation we need? Okay, let's let's try something else. So we come back around to the regulation we need. And that's true. We really need that. So what if you start building software tools and startups, be they for-profit or nonprofit, that work with government organizations? Uh, there's a whole VC fund right now that's spun up called Wild uh, Firetech.vc, uh, but for wildfire technology. It turns out one of the things that needs to happen is we need to thin out all this excess fuel that's in all of our forest uh, because of droughts and also because of poor uh, improper forest management. And the government needs software tools to be able to survey and then manage these massive uh, projects. And so there's some really things, there's some really cool things happening in, in wildfire technology right now. And I, I guess it's hard for me to give one example. And maybe again, that's a problem. Like, where do I get started? Uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening. Here's what I wanted to say. It's you don't need to go become a legislator to go and fix some of these problems. Maybe you're going to be the one to go and build tools for public, both at the local state level, uh, public entities to use to solve some of the problems they're trying to solve right now. And there are a lot of needs there. There's venture funding for those types of solutions. And it could be a way to actually work with your community and your state and provide some local help. So those are opportunities as well. Um, yes, this does require some government rollout. And maybe that's a place where we need more software tools. I'm thinking about running as James from Montana for uh, U.S. Senate. But, oh, man. Uh, Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but if I were actually to do that, what bill am I bringing up first for 128 Collective? You mentioned, you know, there's regulations you need. What are those regulations? What bill? Gosh, you're not talking to the expert right here from the 128 side. And now they're going to kick me in the shins for not having the best answer for this. What we think would move the needle is transitioning, especially starting with the public trans public companies. So there's a weird monopoly that happens amongst power companies and utilities. And a lot of those started as uh, public utilities or became a co-op. Some of them went private. Uh, but making it easier for those to transition to be publicly owned entities uh, and then creating the incentives for those sources of power to be clean, right? Legislation there is needed. Now, what's in the way? Honestly, a lot of regulation is in the way. So it's at NEPA, N-E-P-A, right? In California is vastly complex and it, it what it's what comes up. Oh gosh, somebody somebody correct me if I'm not here. But but regulation like that, so the Environmental Protection Agency, right? That's actually being used against, not being used against, but it's becoming the resistance to getting some of these projects going. So right, I, maybe what I'm a shorter answer to your question would be, 
it's not that we need new policy. We need an intense, we need to intensely scrutinize the policy that's in the way of rolling out the projects we need. And I don't know how this works, but they're throwing out what's not working or really radically reforming um, what needs to be done, which also just probably looks like appropriately resourcing the agencies we need. The IRS being the example, if we want to increase the government's income, it seems like we would resource the agency in charge of making sure that people pay their taxes in order to increase the income. So similarly, if we want to dig deeper wells for geothermal, if we want to uh, carbon sequestration, if we want to roll out new infrastructure, we need to resource those agencies that are in charge of that so that they can be efficient uh, and not be hamstrung in order to get the work done they need to do. Man, that's like the opposite of the answer I thought I was going to get. To be honest, <laughs> what, did you, what, what did you think? What would have been the answer? You you thought I thought you had I thought you had specific regulation in mind, but essentially what I'm hearing is tearing down some of the walls so that you can form new pathways to you know changes rather than the red blocks being regulation. Yeah, we've we've made it really hard to build in the United States, and and some of that is because of the existing institutions that are there, and some of that is just. There's just too many boxes you have to check uh, in between, you know, getting from here to there. So um, I don't think it's a financing problem. I think we have the money. I don't think it's a, I know it's not a technology problem. I know it's not a talent problem, right? We have all those things and it's not agreeing on what the problem is. It's, it's actually being able to build something efficiently. There's examples here. My brain's kicking on a little bit more, but the Taiwanese ship company, uh, they were going to build uh, a fabrication unit in Arizona. They are going to, and effectively it's costing like projected, like triple the amount. <laughs> and it's going to take like four times the amount of time. Like why? Like what's different? Like why? It's it's the same facility. And by the time it's built, it will be old technology, right? So like why? What's what's in the way? It's, it's not the money. It's actually taking more money. Um, maybe talent. They said they had to bring people over, but it's like yeah, kind of talent right? and they got people more, et cetera. But like, why is it taking that many years longer? Right. It's so many, so many other things are stacked on top. So those, those are the challenges that we have right now uh, when it comes to, comes to climate, uh, which again gets all the way back to like, what can I do about climate today? Uh, here's the thing we need, we need to clean up the grid. We know that we, we need to electrify everything. And those two things are a good to start. We've got a lot to do around food and, and cleaning up food as well. But there's a lot of things not to do right now. It turns out uh, anything with trees, like I mentioned, like wildfires and cleaning up, like making sure that forests don't incinerate, that's important. But there's a lot of ways right now that planting more trees and carbon bait with trees. Anyway, the tree stuff gets really messy and it's really hard to plant trees and know if your money's going to the right point, right place right now. Um, for a while, we used to tell people not to mess with anything with like blockchain or crypto in the climate space. Right. We don't have to tell them anymore because that seems to have lost favor. But that was a big thing last year. It was like, ah, eh, probably don't spend time there. We're pretty sure it's using a lot of power and we don't know where those power sources are coming from. So, uh, yeah, we don't have to say that as much anymore. Um, and then, you know, a lot of things around 
carbon. So everything is carbon sequestration. That was a tree side. It turns out that that's not really helping and it's probably not very effective right now. Um, now direct care at, direct air capture technology is really interesting and we need that and we need to figure out how to finance that. The challenge is if we keep, if we keep talking about that as a technology that's going to save us, we're just going to suck all the carbon out of the air that's already there and then put it deep in the ground. Well, we need to do that, but we can't use that as an excuse not to move the needle right now on things. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's better resources than me out there on these things, but the point being, uh, it's helpful to know where not to spend your time right now. And those are some top level things to not spend your time on. Uh, so when I was an environmental scientist, I was working with an agency that had a hard time doing like the basic like data collection and data analysis, because to do that, you know, you had to have programming skills and I'll have you know that science doesn't pay that well. <laughs> right. right. So... Are there, like, have any, you know, local environmental science agencies, like, approached you saying, like, hey, we have this need. Can you, like, broadcast this need? Not necessarily that I know of uh, that have come to us. Like, that, that, would, be, that would be really interesting, but I, I can't think of some. I know that the, the grant-making team on 128 Collective, like, does, they actually try to reach out and support that way. But I, I don't know of any specifics off the top of my mind. That would be cool, though. I don't even know a place for people to go and do that. But yeah, science, like what a technology is sucking a lot of talent out of science right now. And I didn't even talk about that, but there's a lot of challenges right now in scientific grant writing, getting grants. Yeah. The state of innovation that's happening in the scientific community, the resourcing that probably needs to be there. Again, I'm not the one to talk about it, but I've, I've definitely seen that on the radar several times is an area that's challenging right now. David, so you mentioned uh, cryptocurrency and- <laughs> oh, here we go, here we go. <laughs> the anti-climate is, tech. Is that, is that the biggest offender when we talk about like technology ethics? Oh, geez. Well, it depends on what kind of offender. I, I don't know. And I don't think that, well, I did have some challenges with crypto specifically and not that it was- bad technology, I think the use cases became, let's put it this way. Would crypto have been nearly as interesting if it wouldn't have had you know, some kind of dollar sign next to it, right? Like a money equivalent. And that that became challenging for me. I think blockchain tech technology is fascinating. And I, I think there's still some cool things to be had there. And that we'll see. I Yeah, I've talked to folks even in the last couple of weeks. I do think that, uh, especially with modern Ethereum made the shift, but they've been able to transition away from these, you know, high energy consumption. Right. We're yeah, staking people. now. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's, that's been a really, that's, that's a very positive trend. I, I guess I, I will say that there's, there's research that's been done. Um, trying to think of what, oh gosh, uh, this, the paper, I can see it in my mind, but the title is not coming up, but effectively, when you look at you know, server farms and the energy consumption, the, the, the carbon output is pretty much equivalent to the um, airline industry, right? So it's, it's significant and in the 3% range, right? Which makes it sound smaller, but there's, there's a lot that could be done there. A lot of 
server farm data, like a lot of those cloud compute centers are located near hydropower, right? They're trying to position themselves in areas where they're, they're thinking better. Water use is actually another. So I'm thinking about all the things that are related to, to crypto, but it turns out that you got to cool, you got to cool all this hardware somehow, and you need a lot of water to do that. So in a world where drinking water is becoming more and more scarce, uh, because of droughts, et cetera, that that becomes another problem that we didn't think about. I mean, so it's just, it's hairy. It goes, it goes down far. Um, let me, let me flip that though, because the things I think about and care about in terms of software ethics is it's easy to get stuck in the like, oh my gosh, we didn't see that coming. Like, oh, that's terrible. How do we not, how do we not make that mistake again? And personally right now, the mistakes I think we've got a long way to reconcile for is what we've done to kids with uh, mobile devices and apps. I think about that. I think about that a lot as a parent and um, as software developers, like human centered design. Oh, this is amazing. Oh, wow. Look like we can figure out how to help people create habits with these UIs. And then like, Oh yeah, man, I can get people to click on things all day long. Like we, we quickly went from being able to design things and have empathy for the end user to hijacking humans and, and, and creating this addictive behavior. Yeah. We need to think about that a lot more and, and figure out how to, how to undo some of the harms that have been done there. And we didn't, we didn't mean to. So yes, yes to all that. And those are real problems we need to think hard about. And yes, those are all philosophical problems and they have to do with morality and ethics. I, I care a lot more and where I spend time thinking about, which is um, I really like virtue ethics because I like the idea and I'm captivated by the idea of what, what is our human potential? Like what, what can we become? What are we capable of at our fullest? And how do we cultivate those kinds of capacities in ourselves and in ourselves as a community and a culture? And technology, which is by definition an extension of human intelligence, is something we can use to enable that cultivation, right? So there's a lot of things and a lot smarter people have written these things down about what, what we shouldn't do, what our obligations are, that becomes laws, that becomes compliance, that becomes regulation. We're missing right now what I feel like is a void in the area of what can be B, what is, what is human capacity flourishing look like? You know, given where we are, who can we become? At local communities, turns out we're really lonely. We don't hang out with people anymore. State communities, nations, global community. What what can we become uh, in a way that optimizes for us all to flourish? And those are the questions I really like. And I would love to be able to, if I could contribute anything in the career ahead of me, it's what are the technologies we need and how could we use technology to move the needle on becoming more like those things that we envision we could be in the future. And that's where I think climate falls under that. That's where the software ethics falls under that. That's where AI falls under it right now. Instead of thinking about what we shouldn't be doing, I, I would rather spend my time thinking about what we could be doing. And I don't have those answers there yet. That's just the question I'm captivated most by right now. Okay, so uh, AI ethics have been all over the news. How do you feel about the ethics of AI? <laughs> How do I feel? Well, 
AI agents don't really care about ethics one way or the other. They're a little ambivalent, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I'm fine. I'm glad we're finally talking about it. And I think it's, I think it's important. It's got, it's got everyone's attention and hopefully at large, we are not going to be caught off guard this time. We're a little spooked by whatever happened with you know, social media, which is really phones and devices in our pockets, coupled by a lot of, you know, back-to-back catastrophes, right? I think we're a little more alert to these things. Things can go in unintended directions with new technologies like this, especially when they're to right, have a have a chance for exponentially increasing their scale of effect and 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 improving and progressing quickly. The reality is we don't, this is similar to climate. Like we have what we need to solve the problems today. Um, the thinkers are there. Philosophy, ethics, morality has been around for thousands of years. Like we, we've got, we've got frameworks to pull off the shelves, people to learn from. We have experts right now that, that are available and have the knowledge of them and thinking about this really well and really deeply for a long time. So I think the state of things are, the where things are right now is I really like that this is focus and up front and center. And I like that the conversation is happening publicly now. Again, going back to my approach on ethics, what I get concerned about is that policy, oughts, obligation, duty, like what should and shouldn't be done, that that will be an answer because I don't, I don't think it will be. You can't write enough rules to mitigate the future of these technologies, right? There'll always be one step behind. So like I said, I think there's this missing vision for like, what, what do we want to do with these technologies? And that would help us guide like how we think about using them and what's missing, what tools we need that we don't have. But what I think needs to happen that hasn't happened yet is that, that common space for where I see a lot of people in legislation, a lot of people in philosophy and academia, and a lot of people building these things all talking past each other, right? And they're trying to sit down and have a conversation. But that true multidisciplinary approach where people sit down and understand, like, like my family does with my kids, sit down and understand where everyone is coming from and what they need, and then come up with a common solution. That's what I'm looking for next, and I don't see that happening yet. So until my friends working on AI tools at a startup, understand what's available to them to help them build a quote, better product in a lot of new ways, right? They're concerned about the risks and the unintended consequences, but until the resources are available for them that aren't necessarily like a list of do's and don'ts, um, I don't, I don't feel like there's a satisfactory answer for like, what does it mean to ethically use this technology? I don't have an answer for that yet. I just know that people are asking those questions and they're concerned about it. I, I feel like your general tone when we talk about like, you know, technology ethics and, and AI and climate tech has been like very optimistic. Conversely, like I just had sort of like an existential crisis the other day, like, man, like I work in tech and like all I do is I make dumb shit to make people like buy more dumb shit, you know? <laughs> Uh, so do you think that like society, AI and climate tech could, you know, one day like work in tandem to solve problems? A absolutely. Will it solve the problems that need to be solved? The, the most important ones to solve? I don't know. I mean, I know those things are possible. Yes, I, I am. I've been 
called. I'm a techno-optimist. But again, let, let me back up a step. I, I think what you're experiencing is pretty common. And like that, just that feeling of like, what am I doing with my life? That's called being human. It's probably exacerbated now because of the state of the world and our view of the state of the world and, and the perspective we have on it. So I, I have 100% empathy for those things. But I, I think that's normal, not just about um, the tools themselves. I, I do think we have rearranged our understanding of the good life as a society in the United States, can't speak outside of it very much, to be around and very focused on things like career, finances, money. And we take all these externals and that becomes a way of gauging happiness in our life. And there's a real danger there uh, because it turns out that a lot of the things that are the most satisfying and fundamental and grounding are really, really hard to measure in terms of human experience, right? There's language for that. Uh, there's, there's other ways of knowing experiencing those things, but as a society, we're not really good with those. So th the reason I'm talking about those right now is I think it'd be really easy to chase the wrong things right now. So look, since 2015, let me just go off the cliff here a little bit. Since 2015, American life expectancy has been decreasing. 2015, this is well before the pandemic. You know, people have written a lot about that, but you had the opioid crisis, right? Medical technology. Uh, you started to see probably the effects of, you know, other crises compounded by social media and isolation, right? Um, but again, the net effect being Americans are dying younger on average every year, 2015, then very much compounded by the pandemic. And now we've got the Surgeon General's report that like, we're super lonely, we're super disconnected, and we're not happy. Teen girls, of which I'm going to have some in a few years, are especially at risk of suicide and depression. And oh, by the way, the world is on fire. And this Little weekend thing. in particular, right? So when you say, how can we use all these things to solve problems? Yes, technology is capable of solving the problems. We're going to create more problems too along the way. Uh, but what, what I'm optimistic about is we already know how to solve some of the fundamental problems around loneliness and community. And we just need to get back to identifying that those things are the problem that we want to solve, collaboration and working together. And then, of course, of course, we can use technology to enable those things. Um, and I'm, I think AI is fascinating. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, and people are going to make a ton of money on it. And some things are going to get a lot better and some things are going to get a lot worse. Yeah, but I don't have any particular stake in like AI is going to be the answer to these problems. But I do think it could be the answer if we focus on the right problems we wanted to solve. Like I, I can absolutely imagine ways that AI could make us more connected and could improve communities and relationships, could reduce loneliness and isolation. And, and again, for me, those are the things that add up to, to flourishing. And you know what? Uh, there are some really rough years ahead of us. And we, we kicked normal out the door, you know, many years ago when it turns to like the state of the world. Uh, so we're, we're going to need more tools to help us. 
navigate and adapt to the the changing future that we have. So I am optimistic that we can figure that out. I just think we need to be really careful about what we're trying to solve for. Honestly, I'm just a dude in his garage in Northern California, you know, trying to figure out how to like shepherd his kids through all this craziness right now, you know? And I don't want to harp on the negative, but I am hoping by asking you this question, you will find the optimism in it. I'm ready. So I've been talking to a few other guests about the negative news in tech, primarily around layoffs. Mm. What's your read on that, man? Oh, man, I'm old. I'm, I'm 46 and I'm like, yeah, well, well, welcome to life. <clears throat> yes, I, it has been a hard season for a lot of people. And I do not want to dismiss that and the effects of it. It's, it's unfortunately normal. This is, this is the way the world works and the cycles that it goes through. And it's never rational. It's normal. It's the byproduct of things being messy and broken. And uh, so I'm honestly not super phased by it. But again, I'm in a position of like from the outside looking in a little bit. So I don't, I don't want to say that with any... Yeah, I, I want to be careful when I say that because transitions are hard. Career transitions are brutal. And if you're in someone who's trying to, I mentioned shepherding your family, like through something like that, especially if this sole income earner and you've got kids, like, oh, there's just nothing that can be more brutal than trying to figure out when your next paycheck is going to come in because you've got people in your care. Uh, so that that's really hard. My My hope for what this means is pandemic plus what's been, you know, the changing and reshaping of these large uh tech companies is we're going to get a kind of diaspora of people relocating to new areas, looking to work in new things. And I know funding is down, all this other stuff, but you know, it was, it, it was time for a reforming in a lot of this, like it just systems have to go through restructuring. So what, what will happen this year is we're going to see a lot more people learning to work for themselves. We're going to see a lot more startups coming out of this. Um, as I mentioned on the fundraising side, we've been really busy. Yes, it's harder to raise money. And when it's harder to raise money, you know what people do? They figure out how to just like make, like get customers and grow a good business. And you get back to basic business fundamentals. And it's still a good time to build a company. And being in software is the right place to be uh, to build a company. There's a lot of opportunities, only increasingly so. And as we talked about, there's a lot of challenges out right now. So, Yes. Okay. I mentioned the whole like virtue ethics thing and right. Optimizing and like cultivating these characteristics in yourself. Well, the way you, the way you do that is you have to go through a process like humans do stuff and we have to, we get shaped by what we do and by how we think. And it turns out that going through a really, really challenging hard time is the most ripe opportunity for forming yourself and shaping yourself and building. I know it's my mom's and dad's voice in my head character, but the right characteristics uh, than ever. And in people who have to learn um, the power of their own agency and hopefully because they have a support system around them, right? Experience 
just how deep their capacity for overcoming challenges are. Like that's all deeply, deeply wonderful human stuff. Um, that's why I set out in the entrepreneur journey. I just, I wanted to, I wanted to test my metal, see what, see what I could do. And it turns out like I got my ass kicked a lot. And then on the flip side, I realized, oh yeah, you know, you know how you learn the best, make a lot of mistakes. It's crazy. We're hardwired to like learn from mistakes. Uh, when I grew up, like spelling bee, you never want to get the wrong answer because I know more now. Like I tell my kids when they ask me to spell a word, I promise I'll bring this home. They ask me how to spell a word. I'm like, you got to guess first. I'm like, I don't want to guess. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Because when they guess and get it wrong, they're more likely to remember it the same way, which is so counterintuitive. And um, man, there's nothing, there's nothing like being tested with like, what are the limits of my own personal agency and making a life for myself? And again, that's different for everybody, but there's nothing like those kind of situations where you're just in the pressure chamber, hopefully not too much pressure that, right. You really grow as a person. And I think that's going to happen. That can happen at large across a lot of opportunities. So that's, that's what I think about uh, when I think about these kind of things. And again, these cycles come, this is not new. If it's your first one to go through, um, I don't know what the future holds and I don't know if or when it's going to get better, uh, but you can be better. And um, it is possible. It's possible to go through the process, right? Like you got to have a vision for where you want to go and what you want to do. Um, and the one thing that you can control, whatever situation you're in right now, is you can optimize for answering the question, who do I need to become to do what I want to do? And there's nothing like challenges and hard times to force you to think about who you want to become to do what you want to do. And that, that can be a beautiful thing. Not always, but it can be. So that's the opportunity. There's my optimism for you, James. I love it. I love it. Talk? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It, there's a lot of satisfaction in becoming the person you can be. And that's really, we talked about happiness. Turns out there's a lot of happiness that can come from that. Becoming the person that uh, that you want to be and focusing yeah. on that. Yeah. And, and really, yeah, I'll say it better. Who do you need to become to do what you want to do? Man, I imagine that there are people listening to the podcast that don't have a job right now and, you know, are either looking super hard, maybe even they're, you know, not looking as hard anymore because they're, they've ran out of opportunities or at least feel that way. Or maybe even people that are in tough situations with the companies that they're at. And I think uh, your advice is sound, especially if you have an idea and you want to be an entrepreneur, maybe maybe now's the time. It can, it can be. It can be. And I, I think it's worth, it's worth looking at. Momentum builds momentum. Start working on something and then let that open you up to next steps, right? Maybe that is your next job, which is, which is great, but um, you got to do something. Well, I always have to ask a food related question to wrap up. So oh boy, my question Ooh. for you, David, is would you eat a lab grown steak? And in your opinion, is it technically vegan if no animals were harmed in its creation? <laughs> lab grown. So are we talking like animal cell cultures that we just kind of grew up what, what are we doing here yeah exactly yep beaker steaks man i'm already thinking way too deeply about this i mean probably who am i kidding 
that would be okay. I mean, is that any different than like how much we process foods right now anyway? We do some weird stuff to like, you know, we start with a plant and then it becomes like some weird isolate that we eat that and we call it cocoa puffs. I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so pro- probably I, I do, I have, I have a lot of concerns because the farther, the farther we get food away from where it came from, the more weird stuffs we do to ourselves. So I, I would be careful. I'll say this, James. I'd rather just like eat the plants. Like, I don't know. I'd rather just not eat. <laughs> Maybe that's where I end up. I, we, we need it though. Like it turns out people are always going to want to eat meat. And if it tastes like and looks like and smells like meat, then let's let's grow it in a lab if that actually has net positive effects on all the other things. I, I'm all for that. Denise, what about you? Is this steak corn finished? <laughs> grass-fed lab-grown steak <laughs> the free-range stuff mm. i can make it work am i like starving like give me give me the whole like contact I, <laughs> I like oh. denise's better it's much better than mine <laughs> i thought too hard about it but also like you know technically vegan if no animals were harmed in its creation i don't think that exists yet um because like the you know the the nutrient bath that you have to bathe it in is usually like fetal pig serum Ew. or a fetal fetal cow serum. It's okay if you change your answer now, David, now that you've heard that. <laughs> I needed to know more. I was missing information. Yeah. <laughs> Data points. David, any anything we haven't touched on? Anything you want to mention or shout out? Oh, man. I, of course I do. Well, thank, thank you, too. I would love to invite people to the uh, Redwood Conference that we're having in September redwoodjsconf.com you can also link to it from our website that's redwoodjs.com core team the co-founders of redwood we're four years into this three years as a public project and this is the first time that we've been able to get people together in person for a conference it's going to be small and intimate we've curated a lot of the aspects of it really inspired by early days of like ruby on rails meetups and conferences where it felt like an insider's event, not that it was exclusive, but that, that you just got to be with and learn from the people that were on the cutting edge of building this thing and building things with the tools. And that's exactly what this conference will be. You don't need to know or learn Redwood JS to come. Again, this is for people that are building modern projects using JavaScript, a modern infrastructure, and are trying to figure out like, how do I, how do I build products quickly and efficiently and then go from zero to scale? And we're going to cover topics. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship. We're going to have topics for founders. We're going to talk about all the different technologies that are in the Redwood stack. And I'm really psyched about this. We're doing a founders workshop where that'll be Tom, myself, a couple others from the core team. We're going to get uh, at least five, if not 10 founders. So five startups total in a room for workshop together. We're just going to, we're going to do group deep dive therapy on you, your product. We're going to go deep on your tech stack. Everyone's going to get at least 45 minutes and we're just going to try to compress and accelerate dev time and product thinking for, for five startups for the founders workshop. We have a couple spots left for that. Uh, Apollo is doing a, a workshop. So Apollo GraphQL, they're going to do advanced. That'll be great. Prisma, uh, so DevRels from both teams is coming to do a workshop. And that's all like day zero. So those are the workshops and then a two-day conference. Um, similar topics uh, that'll be happening. And then 
if you can stick around the last day, so there is a day four. Uh, I guess my indexing is off there though, right? Zero, one, two, three. <laughs> the last day on Friday, if you can stick around, we're in beautiful Grants Pass, Oregon. It's just going to be a play day. There's all kinds of, you could go sit on a river, go down the Rogue River, go fly fishing. I'm going to go mountain biking. Anyone's able to join me. We'll have a bunch of activities you can sign up for. It's a beautiful area in Southern Oregon. And you'll want to be there in September. It'll be really great. So it, it, you don't have to be a Redwood fan to want to come. It's going to be a really wonderful community experience. And I failed to mention, so I'll mention it now. We're going to talk a lot about React server components in Redwood because that's going to open up a lot of use cases for Redwood. So that will be one of the themes of the conference. So please come, redwoodjsconf.com. I told you a lot of words. Our website says it much more succinctly. Uh, we'd love to have people come and join us. It's going to be a blast and heavy on relationship and community and collaboration for sure. We want this to be an event that people walk away with connections they carry forward in their career. And I think it's possible. You guys going to come? Did you say fly fishing? I think I might be there. <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, I will have the links to everything that's mentioned in the podcast today. And I want to thank you, David, for joining me. And also thank you to Denise for joining me to co-host this episode. And thanks for listening to the James from Montana podcast. If you want to support this production or see more content like this, visit jamesfrommontana.com. Consider signing up as a member. You can get free emails when new articles or episodes like this one drop.